So now let's go to our first question. It says, in order to be born again, does one have to be baptized? From my understanding, that is how the church views baptism. So it depends on which baptism you're referring to. There are two baptisms. One baptism is the ceremonial baptism that we sometimes have the opportunity to partake in and perform. And then there is the, uh, and that one is actually not uh, required for salvation. The thief on the cross did not go through that. Uh, People in the Old Testament, I don't think there's any record of Elijah or Enoch being baptized uh, in, in water. But, uh, but, so, but, but um, the baptism that is required is the baptism of the heart, mind, and inmost being in the Holy Spirit, where we are immersed in the Holy Spirit and cleansed from sin and rebelliousness and rise to newness of life in Jesus Christ with a new heart and right spirit and new motives. That baptism is symbolically represented by the water baptism, and the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is requirement because that's the healing, regenerating, renewal process that brings us from the, the terminal sin condition into a new life that we receive from Jesus Christ. Uh, and then in the New Testament um, uh, period, the water baptism was a means of uh, acting that out symbolically, affirming that publicly, witnessing it to people who don't know yet, but the thief on the cross didn't go through that. Uh, there were people in the arena that were being uh, converted by the uh, witness of other Christians who were being persecuted at the same time, who gave their heart to the Lord. And this is my understanding how sprinkling came in from immersion, that some of the prisoners that were about to be sacrificed to the lions in the arenas of Rome uh, were won to Christ by a, a Christian who was about to be sacrificed in the arenas of Rome. And, and they wanted to be baptized, but they didn't have a place to immerse them because they were in the prison. So they would take a cup of water and sprinkle them with water to the best of their ability. And this is where the tradition of sprinkling originated. Um, but it really wasn't about the water or the method of the water. It was about immersing the heart and mind. And there are many people who have gone through the Bible immersion in the water in the church ritual that have come out with hearts that were not renewed <laughs> and, uh, and went through the, the water for, for a variety of reasons, like, uh, well, the, the, the person they wanted to marry wouldn't marry them unless they became a member of the church. So they went ahead and got dunked so they could marry the person, but they never gave their heart to the Lord. Okay, that kind of thing. In the Sure Word Bible Study Lesson 8, uh, of the 10 principles of Bible study, the principle of interpretation of figurative speech or symbolism, it tells us that if it makes good sense as it stands, if it doesn't violate the laws of nature, then it can be understood as can, can be understood as literal. This makes perfect sense, but who came up with this principle? What's it based on? Where did you come from? Yeah, I don't know who came up with that principle. Uh, that I didn't write the Sure Word Bible Study. It was written by another uh, Christian gentleman that we uh, cherish and and uh, who donated that to us, and I think it also makes good sense, and I like the way that was worded by him. It says, can be understood. Uh, just because something is literal does not necessarily mean it doesn't also have symbolic application. For instance, Jesus used the parable of the sower, and seed that falls in the ground does sprout and take root. That's literal, but there's also a metaphorical application of truth being planted in the heart. So just because something can all, can be understood literal doesn't mean it doesn't have a symbolic application either. So we don't want to be too restrictive. Regarding Romans 14 and your conscience in regards to design law, 
and Romans 14 is about um, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind of one person views one day more sacred, another person another day, one person, uh, the uh, the immature eat only vegetables, the mature can eat anything sold in the meat market, so forth. This is the conversation here. Uh, if you believe a lie, specifically that something is not a sin, but you believe it is a sin, but it's not a sin, and you commit the act or thought, is it a sin because you believe it's a sin? And this is a great question because it helps elucidate the difference between design law and imposed law. Imposed law is all about the behavior. And if, it, if, it, if you believe doing something is illegal, but it's not illegal, you're still not in legal trouble. Therefore, if that's your idea of sin, then even though you believe it's a sin, but it's not a sin, it's not legal, then, then, you're, then you're, you're still okay, so it doesn't matter. Okay? That's not reality. This is not what the Bible's teaching. This is why Paul said, if you believe eating meat in the, excuse me, eating meat in the meat market is a sin and puts you under the curse of the, or the power of the, uh, of the pagan gods, then you better not eat it. Uh, why? Because Bible sin is about breaking trust with God. And if you believe in your heart God has told you to take a certain action or not, either way, and you do it anyway, it's not about the action, it's about your distrust of God. And until you get clarification and have been persuaded by the truth that God never asked you to do it, uh, until you get that clarification, if you do it, you're breaking trust with God, and that's what Paul says in Romans, sin is. Sin is a breakdown in trust. We don't trust God, we do things our own way. And so it really isn't about the act. But those who focus on the rules focus on the act. And if the act is not prescribed, then it really doesn't matter what's going on in the heart. But the design law, it's all about the heart and the motives of the heart. And that's what Paul's making in Romans 14. Let's see. Regarding the, the fire of God's glory, how was Satan and the deceived angels able to stand in that fire um, they, when they were still in heaven. They'd already started their rebellion, but yet they weren't consumed by that fire. How is that possible? And, and we don't know. Uh, angels are made out of different substance than we are. They're not made out of the dirt of the earth as Adam was. Uh, we don't know. Uh, the suggestion would be we do know that God veiled his glory so that he could reach human beings, so human beings wouldn't be destroyed. We know that had God allowed Satan and his sympathizers to die from their sin in heaven, that it would not have brought an end to rebellion, but rebellion would have would have spread further. So it is uh, very possible that God uh, created some shielding, if it were, for Satan and his sympathizers to allow the rebellion to be carried out so that all intelligent beings could recognize that pain, suffering, and death do not come out from God as inflicted punishment from sin, but come from the rebellion and deviation from God's design laws themselves, and that would not have been evident in the beginning. But we aren't told specifically as to why that's the case. The second beast of Revelation 13 will direct the leadership of fallen religious religions to endorse the beast and the various political leaders. My question, I understood that the people would ask the leaders to use the state power to enforce worship of the beast. Can you say more about this, please? It, it is a combination of absolute both. How does the beast get the people to do this? The beast deceives them and uses the various beastly powers to coerce and pressure the people to pressure their leaders to do these things. So it's not an either or. The, the, the beastly power 
powers are being used on the people who then use their influence on leaders to uh, reinforce more of the beastly powers. The beastly powers of deception, for instance. It says, would you consider the striking of Herod after Peter's prison delivery a shadow of the final destructive of the wicked? No, I would not, uh, because the, uh, the, and neither would I, the next one is about Ananias and Sapphira. No, these are first death experiences. The wicked die in the end an eternal death which, from which there's no resurrection, not a sleep death from which there's a resurrection. So those deaths cannot be rightly compared. And one of the major mistakes that many people do is they constantly try to apply first death experience to second death consequence and, and what happens at the end and draw analogies because you can see where God did use his power to put some people to sleep in the grave in the first death and people will then say God will use his power to kill the weak man but those are completely different experiences and for different purposes and they're not this uh, and they and and so putting somebody to sleep if you want to use a what we can do as humans putting somebody under anesthesia and waking them up is not the same thing as killing them says, how Satan would exalt to have a message go broadcast that only the people whom God has made the repositories of his law are the ones to whom the message applies. The wine of Babylon is, is exalting the false Sabbath and spurious Sabbath above the Sabbath. No, actually the wine of Babylon is, is, is promoting the imposed law methodologies upon which the declaration or legislation of a day of worship became possible. You cannot change. Again, we've had this conversation many times. People do not write laws in church committee or any legislative body, such as on bad pollution days, people are not required to breathe, or um, any of the United, uh, any planes with a U.S. flag and registered with the U.S. registry um, will not fall out of the sky if their engines stop. Okay, Uh, people don't write laws like that because they know they can't change the laws upon which reality function. And so any change to the laws of God were only initiated after people first accepted the lie that God's law works like human law, just made up rules. And so the real wine of Babylon is the idea that God's law works like human law and are subject to change. Uh, That's the real wine of Babylon. Second uh, Timothy 3, 1 through 5 gives a long list description of characteristics of people in the last days. It says to avoid such people. I'm trying to understand pride and narcissistic behavior and how the Bible defines them. The Bible does not define narcissism. So you can't, we cannot make a biblical comparison because the Bible does not talk about narcissism. Narcissism is a human construct uh, made of modern psychiatry based on the mythical figure Narcissus who looked into a pool of water and saw his own reflection and fell in love with himself in which a person values self above all others. So it is a form of extreme self-centeredness. Uh, narcissism uh, and, say, uh, um, Antisocial personality disorder or psychopathy, people who are psychopaths, are are not the same. The difference, all psychopaths, uh, the antisocial who will be a serial killer, all of them are narcissistic, meaning self is more important than anyone else. But not all narcissists are psychopaths. And the difference is narcissists still have the capacity for feeling guilt and empathy, whereas the psychopaths have lost all capacity for feeling guilt and empathy. Pride is the uh, element of 
of arrogance and self-exaltation, and certainly narcissism would have elements of pride, but not every person who struggles with pride is going to be a narcissist. I recently recommended in Sabbath school that God show mercy to the antediluvian pe- God showed mercy to the antediluvian people by allowing time and repentance as the water rose. The retired pastor leading the class discussion commented it was not that that it was not an Adventist belief, but that all the antediluvians would be lost. I argued for the children and the unborn, at least, how they could have chosen. The pastor started quoting something. Uh, to back up his claim, but I was shocked. I couldn't process it and, frankly, didn't want to ask him to clarify. Are all the antediluvian people lost? What are your thoughts? Does Auntie Ellen bring uh, light to the subject that that all antediluvian people are lost, children and unborn? So this is a great question because it mixes two issues that sound like they're talking about the same thing, but they're not. These the, what you what you were saying, and what the pastor is responding are two separate issues that appear to be about, talking about, but it's not. You were talking about God and the rising waters creating a space or an opportunity for repentance. That is a true statement. The pastor is taking the position that all the hearts of those who didn't get on the ark were so hardened in their rebellion that no amount of truth or no amount of love would have any redeeming influence, and so nobody would repent. Those are both true. God did create a space and time because that's who God is and gave opportunity for repentance. That doesn't necessarily mean anyone took advantage of the opportunity. And so we don't have any evidence that people did take uh, advantage of the opportunity. And Ellen White says in a couple of places comments that would indicate no one did, uh, that all of the righteous were, you know, Methuselah died the year of the flood, and all the righteous that were savable uh, had died prior to the flood or got on the ark, and everyone who died in the flood's heart was permanently hardened and so forth and so on. She makes comments along these lines. That doesn't dis- disavow or, or discredit the fact that the way God handled it demonstrated a mercy and opportunity. And if they truly were repentant, God would be happy for them to repent like the thief on the cross and allow them into heaven. And so when dealing with, with people like uh, the pastor, you're not going to win them, and, and, and you shouldn't try. You should simply say, well, uh, and I would say to him, let me ask you this question. If a person did repent during that time after the ark, the door was closed, and the flood was rising, and there was somebody out on the outside that did genuinely repent and experience salvation. And, and when we get to the new heaven and the earth, you discover that they're in heaven. Are you going to be upset? <laughs> and, and, and I promise you, most, most people who take, that, uh, take the argument this pastor did will get upset at that question. And then you say you look upset at the question. Why does that question upset you? And see, that's the real issue here. There's something in the heart that doesn't really want to be, and it's usually legal. Ollie, Ollie, in free, time's up. God counted to 100, 
close the door. You missed your chance. You're going to be called out. Your foot wasn't on the base. That's how that's how the legal approach it. Recently, you mentioned the real Dr. Fauci book by Robert Kennedy, a longtime advocate of people in dire need across the globe. The book is now banned. No surprise. However, it's still available at Skyhorse Publishing. I, I, I'm not aware where this banned, but that's what this person wrote. Um, as I read the uh, actions of Anthony Fauci and others in the book, I was literally brought to tears by the death and devastation caused by them from AIDS to Ebola to COVID. But then I remember Revelation 14, the third angel's warning, there is no rest for those who worship the beast in his image or anyone who receives the mark in his name. It calls for patient endurance on part of the saints, those who love God's methods and remain true to Jesus. And then, yeah, there's no question there, just, just a comment. Uh, living in a healthy relationship with a BPD. Now, the BPD is, is a acronym or letters that can apply to either bipolar disorder or borderline personality disorder. And I'm not sure which one this person is referring to. I'm going to make the assumption they're referring to a borderline personality disorder, not a bipolar disorder. But the, the letters could go either way. Living in a healthy relationship with somebody with borderline personality disorder, spouse, living in a... Okay, by definition, you cannot have a healthy relationship with a borderline personality disorder spouse. Wow. Healthy relationships require healthy people, and borderline personality disordered are unhealthy people, and the core func dysfunction is in how they relate to others. They have marked insecurity. They see threats of abandonment and rejection, perceive slights when none are given. They constantly accuse. They have emotional dysregulation. They are critical. They have false guilt. They are dysfunctional if they have borderline personality disorder. And so you can have a relationship with them. You cannot have a healthy relationship. So your STEM question, living in a healthy relationship with a borderline personality disorder, is false on its face. It cannot be. It's not possible. It says, living in a healthy relationship with a borderline personality disorder spouse does not operate under human law of relationships, but requires a different relationship and response lens. Yeah, in, in order to maintain a semblance of harmony with a borderline disorder spouse, you have to surrender your individuality to their control, lest they take offense and they have a, a, a temper tantrum, some expression of hysteria, some accusation, some tirade. And so you are trained as the spouse of the borderline to constantly walk on eggshells, constantly see through their lens, constantly try to assess what will make them happy. And if you do everything they want all the time, most of the time you'll have some sense of peace. But this is not healthy relating. It's dysfunctional. Any nuggets of productive methods for mental health? Yes. Healthy relations require healthy people. And healthy people are in governance of themselves. So you need to surrender. You need to stop surrendering your individuality to your spouse. Reclaim your own individuality. Seek to put God first in your life. Seek to do what's right, healthy, and reasonable in governance of yourself, irrespective of your spouse's emotional responses to that. And give your spouse freedom, law of liberty, freedom to have any reaction or response they have as long as you are doing what's right, healthy, reasonable, Christ-like in governance of yourself. That is your responsibility. And it says, 
It says, can you explain two groups of people that God uses metaphors to explain um, the um, old wine, new wine, wheat, tares, uh, sheep, goats, and so forth and so on? Yeah, it's very simple. The saved and the lost. Those who've accepted Jesus had a new heart and right spirit, had God's laws and principles put on their heart so they love God and others more than self versus those who hold to the world's methods. Uh, fear, driven, self-centeredness, using external control and force, willing to put laws on others to seek some just cause in order to protect self in some way under the guise of doing what the greater good for people. This whole perverse system of the beastly coercive system is uh, is part of uh, being uh, being lost. Whereas the, the righteous are those who have the heart heart, character, minds, method, principles of Jesus restored within them. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for the way you run your universe. We pray that your Holy Spirit of truth and love will be poured out in our hearts and enable us to live your methods and principles and how we treat others. We pray in your holy name. Amen.